0: Welcome to episode two of the Foreign Desk's second historical series. For three weeks, we're examining historical events as the Foreign Desk might have covered them at the time, working only from the information which would have been available to us. This week, it's the Easter Rising in Ireland in 1916. In our parallel universe, this episode broadcasts on Saturday, April 29th, 1916. We know that this is about four years before the first actual radio broadcast in the UK. Live with it. Brianna Nick Diamada, Professor Emerita at the University of Notre Dame's Department of Irish Language and Literature, plays our woman on the ground in Dublin. Quentin Peel, Monocle Regular and Associate Fellow at Chatham House's Europe programme, performs the role of our Whitehall correspondent. And John Dorney, historian, author, and editor of the Irish Story website, becomes our analyst. In a- It was the 19th century Irish politician Daniel O'Connell who coined the maxim, England's difficulty is Ireland's opportunity. This week in Dublin, a cohort of O'Connell's spiritual descendants have tested that theory to literal destruction. As the United Kingdom fights a terrible war to its east, a new conflict may have been ignited to its west. Five days ago, on Easter Monday, a group of Irish nationalist militants seized the General Post Office in Dublin and other key sites around the city. One of their leaders, an eccentric teacher, lawyer and poet called Padraig Pierce, read a proclamation declaring an Irish Republic, and that, quote, the right of the people of Ireland, to the ownership of Ireland and to the unfettered control of Irish destinies, is sovereign and indefeasible. Five days later, much of central Dublin smoulders in ruins as British troops have mounted an arguably heavy-handed operation to take the city back. Casualties have certainly run into the dozens, at least, many civilians among them. As we go to air, it is reported that the rebels are on the verge of surrender, either or both recognising that they are hopelessly outgunned or calculating that they have made whatever they believe their point to be. What has happened in Ireland this week? And why? How did British authorities not see this coming? Is it really possible that this apparently vainglorious insurrection will cause Ireland to change? Change utterly. This is the Foreign Desk.
1: The British regard events in Ireland with ignorance and arrogance. They've never taken the movement for Irish independence really seriously. They've regarded the act of union between Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom as a fait accompli.
2: Dublin went about their Easter Monday, bank holiday. It was a particularly beautiful, sunny day here in Dublin. And then around midday, a group of people left. trade union and some 200 rebels dressed in uniform marched up Sackville Street they wheeled about and went in with their rifles and bayonets and took over the general post office
3: the thing to emphasize is that this came at us from a bolt in the blue and people are still coming to terms with the idea and there's been a great deal of destruction and a great deal of loss of life in Dublin city. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller.
0: First of all, for the very latest on what is happening in Dublin right now, we're joined by our correspondent on the ground, Brianna Nick-Diamada, who has been embedded all week with the rebels in and around the General Post Office. Brianna, let's start with the basics. Where are you right now and what can you tell us about what's going on?
2: Yes, well, it's been quite an incredible number of days here in Dublin, among the most, I suppose, chaotic and just unbelievable scenes here. Currently, I'm standing around the corner from Moor Street, which is a little street to the north and to the side of the GPO, or the General Post Office, in Saxford Street here in Dublin. And it's there that the rebel leaders have now ensconced themselves. They really in a small little terrace of houses. Currently, they're in number 16, but I believe that they have also borrowed through a number of houses, so they have one of this entire terrace. They would have abandoned the GPO last evening after dark, the GPO has been under siege, basically, has been hit by artillery, incendiary bombs, machine gun fire, sniper fire over the last number of days. And last evening, things became intolerable, I think, for the rebels. The roof had caved in. So they then made their way under heavy British army fire from the snipers across Henry Street, which is the street parallel to the GPO, and made their way into this little warren of thousands houses. And to be honest, things are looking not very good for them, civilian bodies are littering the streets. They're right outside uh, 16 and are looking at three bodies of one rather elderly man, I think, with white flags or white handkerchief things or homemade white flags lying beside them. It's quite a terrible, terrible scene.
0: You've been at the heart of these extraordinary events in and around the GPO since Monday. If you think back to the beginning of this apparent rebellion, what was your sense of how well-organised, well-armed, well-provisioned the rebels are? Because I'm guessing that whatever their plan was, what you've just described was not it.
2: Well, indeed. And just thinking back to the weekend, on Sunday, for example, rumours were filtering through that a German ship had been seized off the coast of Kerry And uh, Sir Roger Casement, a very, very well-known ex-diplomat and civil rights person, human rights, but also a strong Republican and rebel in his sympathies, was captured. And the ship carrying, I think, something like 20,000 rifles, it's rumoured, was scuttled. So I think the authorities, certainly in Dublin Castle, from my discussions with my sources there, didn't expect anything to happen. They felt because these arms were undoubtedly owing to the rebels and that their source of arms was gone at the bottom of the Irish Sea. And also, a very interesting thing occurred in, in the Sunday newspapers. There was a countermanding order from one of the leaders of the Irish Volunteers, Owen McNeil, to say that all manoeuvres that were to be held on that Sunday were cancelled. So then on Monday, I think people kind of had given size thoughts that were in slightly in the know. Certainly, the authorities at Dublin Castle really, I suppose, were becalmed in a sense and were happy that things that might have occurred would not occur. So basically, Dublin went about their Easter Monday, bank holiday. Crowds went to ferry House to the races. Many British officers went off to the races. It was a particularly beautiful, sunny day here in Dublin. And people were walking the streets. It was very normal. And then around midday, a group of people left the trade union, a building called Liberty Hall, which is down in the city centre of Dublin, on the quays, right beside the River Liffey. And some 200 rebels, dressed in uniform, marched up Sackville Street. And people thought it was just a march because they'd done that before. So they wheeled about and went in with their rifles and bayonets and took over the general post office.
0: Now, the reports we're seeing, and indeed you've suggested it yourself, suggest that the response from the British authorities in Dublin has been fairly punishing. Do you get the sense that the rebels in the GPO did not anticipate quite that scale of response from the British? I mean, we've heard of the deployment of artillery in the streets of Dublin, of Royal Navy ships, His Majesty's yachts, Helga and Seahawks shelling Liberty Hall and Sackville Street from the Liffey. Has that come as a surprise to the rebel leadership?
2: I think it has, to be honest. I mean, the first two days perhaps lulled them into the sense of full security, that they were doing well, they were holding these buildings and allowing the British to come. And I think in particular, James Connolly, as I remember, he wrote an article where he believed that authorities, certainly the British, would not bomb civilian city centre mainly not because of the civilians, but because the capitalists would not like to lose their money. He was talking about the German bombing of towns in Belgium, for example. He he believed that would not happen, and he was totally wrong, because by the time the British realised, by about, I suppose, Tuesday, they brought in the army battalions from the based about 30 miles outside Dublin. They came by train to the main station, but they were followed very quickly on Wednesday morning by quite a number of troops who arrived in ships from Liverpool in army ships. They were bound for France, and they were diverted to Dublin, as far as I'm aware. And it's estimated, as I was talking to somebody from Dublin Castle, and they estimated that some 16,000 troops are now in Dublin. So I don't think the rebels imagined that, and I certainly don't think, that when they took these principal buildings, and all of these are under constant barrage by the British forces. General Lowe's strategy really was to tighten the noose on all of these rebel strongholds, and absolutely destroyed Liberty Hall, left it at just a shell. And of course Trinity College, there were machine guns positioned there, artillery, which was again aimed at Sackville Street and the General Post Office. So I think the rebels would have been quite surprised at the ferocity of the response and the fact that really Dublin city centre now resembles Ypres or one of those devastated cities in Europe.
0: What sense were you able to get of what discussions were going on among the rebel leadership as conditions have deteriorated in the GPO over the last few days?
2: Well, that was interesting. Apparently, according to my sources, James Connolly, who was one of the rebel leaders, he had been injured. Uh, He was on a reconnaissance outside the GPO, across to another one of their small garrisons. And he was injured and was brought back into the GPO. I have no information on his condition, but apparently he was shot in the leg. He made an address to the garrison on Friday, where he said, lads, we are winning. Patently, absurd. But then I think Patrick Pearce, again, the rebel leader who styled himself the commander-in-chief of the Irish Republican Army and the president of the provisional government, who was very much the official leader of the rebels, he issued a very interesting statement at 9.30 yesterday morning, which is, I think, more realistic in light of the situation than Connolly's. But he does say, he explains in that, and it's very, very interesting, I think, to see what motivated these men, knowing, most likely, as they did, that they could not win militarily, given the countermanding order, given the fact that they didn't have the arms that they were expecting from Germany, given the fact that half of them that were meant to uh, mobilise on Easter Sunday did not mobilise on Easter Monday, when when it eventually went ahead. So here he says that, basically, they will win, but they might have to win in death. And that's what they have done, is they have expunged the shame of Dublin. It's very much almost like an act of Marxism, if you like. And he also says in that, and in conversations with some of the men there, that he expects that he and perhaps some of the other leaders will lose their lives, but that the men should be, obviously, sent to prisoner of war camps and treated as prisoners of war. And that this then would allow Ireland to take its place at whatever international meeting happened after the ending of
0: the war. Just finally then, as we go to where there are rumours that the rebels are preparing to run up the white flag. Can you tell us anything about that and what they hope will happen after they surrender?
2: Well, yes. In fact, one young woman dressed in a nurse's uniform left number 16 in Wall Street, and rumour has it that she has gone, and she apparently was going to General Lowe with an offer of surrender, looking for terms. Apparently, she had returned back about one o'clock, we believe, and conveyed to Commander Pierce, that, in fact, the British would not accept any terms. They would accept nothing except an unconditional surrender to General Lowe. And currently, they appear to be considering that, an unconditional surrender. But to be honest, looking at events on the ground, they really have no alternative. They're completely hemmed in. All of their garrisons are totally isolated from each other, no communication. And particularly in, in Moor Street, I mean, they're surrounded. So I would imagine that very shortly now, that
0: Thank you. That was Brianna Nick Diamada reporting from the rebel camp in Dublin. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. This is The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. Here in London, meanwhile, the mood seems one of bewilderment combined with outrage. For the latest on how Prime Minister H.H. Asquith and his government are responding, I'm joined by our Whitehall correspondent, Quentin Peel. Quentin, let's look at the home front. His Majesty's Government obviously has a fair bit on right now. Aside, obviously, from terrible ongoing fighting on the Western Front, in the last few days we've had the German Navy shelling Great Yarmouth and Lowestoft, zeppelins bombing the Kentish coast, reports of an imminent or actual surrender to the Ottomans by the besieged British garrison at Kut in Mesopotamia. On top of all that, how would you characterise the British Government's response to events this week? in Dublin?
1: Shock, dismay and anger, I think. A real anger that at such a moment in a war where certainly the British government regards it as the entire United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland at war, there should be an insurrection in one part of the empire. And I think also an element of disbelief, because I think that really Asquith and his fellow ministers in the government were simply not watching their backs in Dublin.
0: Well, that does seem to be just the obvious analysis that everybody had taken their eye off it. But how is that possible? Because Lord Wimborne, who's the Lord Lieutenant slash Viceroy of Ireland, his chief secretary, Augustine Burrell. They can't have been blind to what was being built up in Dublin. It's not like the preparations for this rebellion have been in any way subtle or especially cloistered.
1: Exactly. And indeed, go back two years. 1914 was a year when we really, very nearly had a complete blow up into civil war in Ireland. And it was only the outbreak of the greater war on the Western Front and in France, which allowed everybody, in a way, to put the Irish problem to one side. So it's certainly not as if they shouldn't have been aware that there was simmering discontent in Ireland. The trouble is, I think that Augustine Birrell, in particular, the Secretary of State for Ireland, has simply not been there. He's a very experienced man. He's been Secretary of State for years. And I'm sure he must have known what was going on, but he was enjoying Easter in London.
0: Well, he has now, understandably enough, returned to Dublin, I believe, around Thursday. But we should maybe have a bit of a think about the factors that may have caused His Majesty's government to have rather missed what was going on. And, I mean, there's a couple of possible reasons for complacency, I guess. Was there an assumption that The issue of Home Rule had, in fact, been settled to everyone's satisfaction. The Home Rule Bill had been passed, Royal Assent received, and there was just an understanding that we would need to wait for the war on the continent to be concluded before it could be implemented.
1: Well, there certainly was a sort of truce between the Home Rule and anti-Home Rule sides. But nonetheless, it has been a a real division right through the heart of politics in London, with the Tories backing the Unionists, the Ulstermen, who were determined not to have Home Rule, and the Liberals, on the other hand, relying on the Irish Parliamentary Party, the constitutional nationalists in Ireland led by John Redmond, they have been much more inclined to say, look, we've got a truce, but we'll put the whole thing through once the bigger war with Germany is over.
0: Is there perhaps a certain amount of imperial hubris in play here as well on behalf of the British government, thinking that they are united in a common cause with the Irish subjects of that empire. I mean, perhaps ironically, just this week, of course, General Haig has praised the gallantry of the 16th Irish Division defending Luce in France. I mean, granted, a lot of those Irishmen serving with the British army will be Ulster Protestants, but nevertheless, was Asquith's government thinking, come on, seriously, we're all on the same side here?
1: Yes, I think so. I think that you've got something of the order of a hundred thousand Irishmen serving in the British army in France. And there's a huge debate at the moment. This couldn't have come at a more difficult time, really, for Herbert Asquith as prime minister, because there's a really divisive issue in his party over the question of conscription. He's under great pressure from his allies in France to bolster up the British forces there on the front line because the French have been taking terrible casualties at Verdun in face of a really determined German onslaught and therefore they are really pushing to get conscription introduced in London. The government is totally divided on that. So they were certainly not watching what was happening in Ireland while they were really torn apart on the conscription question at home.
0: So do we understand who is going to be making the decisions about whatever happens now? We believe that the rebels either have surrendered or are about to. So do you think Asquith will want to be seen to be taking charge? Does he leave it with the emissaries in Ireland, Lord Wimborne and Augustine Birrell, who appear to have missed this whole thing happening under their noses? Do heads have to roll? How does Asquith handle
1: this? I think, heads will undoubtedly roll because this is an enormous embarrassment for the British and as I say there is anger as well as shock to the reaction in London. I think that Asquith will certainly want to be in charge of this but he'll also want to shake up the whole structure of British rule in Ireland, the structure of having the Viceroy in Wimborne and the Secretary of State sitting in Dublin Castle, and presumably not keeping their eye on what was really happening on the ground. So I think heads will roll there. Certainly what I gather is that Augustine Birrell himself, he wants to throw in the towel, he wants to quit. But for the time being, of course, they have invoked martial law in Ireland. Now that is very brutal rule by the military and they have General Sir John Maxwell who's gone there and clearly his priority is put this insurrection, this rebellion, put it down instantly and as toughly as possible, whereas I think in London the inclination is likely to be, look, we mustn't be seen to be too brutal because this may merely stir up a much stronger nationalist backlash in Ireland in the long run.
0: Well, this is, of course, the challenge that does now face the British government, even if, as seems to be the case, they have faced down and defeated the rebellion as such. They do now have to deal with the aftermath. Now a coinage already in common currency regarding Irish history is that the English never learn and the Irish never forget. How careful does the government have to be about how it handles this, especially about what it does with the ringleaders of this insurrection?
1: I think extraordinarily careful, and I'm not sure they are inner mind to be as careful as they should be. I mean I quite agree there's another expression about the British and the Irish that the British regard events in Ireland with ignorance and arrogance and I think that that is also a real danger that they've never taken if you like the movement for Irish independence they've never taken it really seriously. They've regarded the act of union between Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom as a fait accompli. And on the other hand, they've also seen that there is this very large body of Ulster volunteers, maybe as much as 100,000 and overwhelmingly armed. That is possibly a greater danger for the British government than the nationalists who are not apparently such a strong force down south.
0: So. When the military authorities now in charge in Ireland consider how to deal with the ringleaders of this rebellion, what's going to be their thinking balancing the desire to impose fairly brutal exemplary punishments versus concerns with making martyrs of these people?
1: I think that the military inclination is always to take the tougher action, to discourage rather than to be political about it. So I fear that with martial law in effect, the military will take a very hard line with certainly all the ringleaders and others. I think we're going to see a real tough clampdown now in Ireland, and then the consequences of that are anybody's guess. I fear for the constitutional nationalists in Ireland, for people like John Redmond, this may be the beginning of their political end. That was
0: our Whitehall correspondent, Quentin Peel. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. It is always hard to judge the significance of an event while it is still occurring. We cannot know right now whether this week's revolt in Dublin will divert Ireland's history, become the subject of rousing ballads and melancholy poems, or if its leaders, should they survive British justice, will become significant figures in Ireland's story. But we're going to do our best. For further discussion of how this happened and what might happen now, I'm joined by the analyst John Dorney. John, first of all, what do we now understand about who is behind this? And let's start with this fellow, Pordrig Pierce, who declared an Irish Republic outside the General Post Office in Dublin on Monday. Who is he?
3: Patrick Pierce or Padraig Pierce is a very well-known cultural figure in the city of Dublin. He's a lawyer, a barrister by training, but he's best known as an educationalist. So he's opened an Irish language school, the first one in the city, where he encourages, you know, the learning of Irish language and culture and also the traditions of Ireland's heroic past. You know, his students dressed up as ancient Irish warriors, and it's believed that many of his students are involved in this rebellion in the city of Dublin. He known also as a political figure, so he was a supporter of the moderate Irish leader, John Redmond, the Irish Parliamentary Party, and of Home Rule. But in 1914, in one of the rallies where he spoke, he did say in the Irish language that if Home Rule was not passed, that there would be Red War in Ireland. So that appears to be what he brought about. Do we know, are there
0: organisations involved in this? We are hearing reports of the Irish volunteers, and they are a relatively known quantity. There's also talk of an Irish citizen army led by this Connolly fellow, but squared against that it's not even clear how unified those organisations are within themselves. There was of course that peculiar announcement in last Sunday's Irish Independent from the Volunteers Chief of Staff, Owen McNeil calling off what he described as manoeuvres for Easter Sunday. Do we understand who's actually in
3: charge here? Not really. We have this proclamation that was issued on Easter Monday with the names, apparently, of the leaders of the rebellion, and they include Patrick Pierce, James Connolly, also people who are familiar from the underground of Ireland, like Thomas Clarke, who was Athenian, who, who was in prison for many years for a bombing campaign in England in the 1880s. But it's not clear at all who was behind this. There are many wild rumours circulating in the city. There's rumours of German forces being behind it, Germans landing. There's rumours that it's a socialist rising, led by James Larkin, who's come back from America, James Connolly's one-time union colleague. And yes, the Citizen Army and the volunteers were very well known in Ireland, and especially in the city of Dublin. They imported arms in the open in 1914 from Hoth, and they have been parading through the streets. Where It's understood there's been some discussion or disagreement within the Dublin Castle administration, the British administration, over whether to disarm them and whether to arrest them. And it's understood that the Chief Secretary, Mr. Burrell, was against this, whereas the military was very much in favour. But it appears also that Owen McNeill, who we know mostly as a professor of medieval Irish history, is against this rising. And he attempted apparently, yes, as you say, to call it off with this newspaper announcement last Sunday,
0: You did mention earlier the the Irish Home Rule Act and the idea of Irish Home Rule. Now, as everyone listening to this broadcast will know, the Irish Home Rule Act did actually receive royal assent in 1914. It is theoretically a done deal, Irish Home Rule. It has been suspended because of the war. That being the case, doesn't this whole thing seem somewhat chaotic? I mean, why not just wait?
3: Well... The people behind the rebellion are in favour not of Home Rule or limited self-government, they're in favour of Irish independence, and in their publications, like the newspaper Irish Freedom, which they put out before the war, before it was banned, they said that Home Rule was a grotesque abortion. At the moment, most of the population of Ireland and of the city of Dublin would appear to still support the moderate nationalists who support Home Rule, but Home Rule has been blocked by resistance of people in Ulster. The Unionists before the war, they said they were prepared to resist Home Rule in arms, and it's understood now that Home Rule would be partitioned, that the northern part of Ireland, possibly nine counties in Ulster, possibly six counties, will not be included in Home Rule. What the radical nationalists have been saying up until now is that Home Rule will never come to pass, that its suspension in the First World War is going to be a long-term thing. So I presume that this is the point of view of the people who took up arms on Easter Monday.
0: Do we have any clear sense of how this has played with the people of Dublin? Whatever their own preferences might be about the future of Ireland and the future of its Irish independence, this has caused astonishing damage to the capital, Dublin. There are hundreds of buildings damaged or destroyed. There are hundreds of people dead. Do the rebels appear to have much public sympathy that they're going to be able to draw upon?
3: It's very difficult to tell at this point. There's very contradictory accounts. On the first day of the Rising, it's reported that there was a great deal of hostility, particularly the rebels taking over at the General Post Office where women were queuing up to get the separation allowance, which they were due for their menfolk who were fighting in the First World War. There appears to have been some sort of altercations at that point between them and the rebels. In other parts, we have reports of people cheering the rebels and so on, but in other places, notably in South Dublin, the richer part of the city, we have people cheering British forces as they came in from the port at Kingstown, which again, nationalists called the Leary. So we have very contradictory reports about how the populace is reacting at this point. The thing to emphasize is that this came at us from a bolt in the blue. Nobody had any idea this was going to happen and people are still coming to terms with the idea and certainly, as you said, there's been a great deal of destruction and a great deal of loss of life in Dublin City.
0: The British will doubtless dispense justice, and it's likely to be fairly rough justice. But the British, you would think, might have learnt the hard way by now, given Robert Emmett, Wolf Tone and any number of others, about the folly of making martyrs of Irish rebels. Do you imagine they'll make the same mistake this
3: time? Well, the hope of Irish nationalists is that they extend clemency to the rebels as was done in previous rebellions. And people are also very mindful of events in South Africa, which is often compared at this time to the Irish situation. And the Boer leaders of the rebellion of 1914, after the start of the First World War, were pardoned. And people are hoping that if the rebels do surrender, that they will be treated leniently. The city is under martial law, though. The military has the right to try people by court martial and to execute them without further process. And that could well happen. General Lowe, who is currently in command, I believe, Another general, Maxwell, who's just arriving in the city today, has issued an order saying that any male who's in the combat zone is a combatant and should be treated as such. So there may be very severe measures taken, though.
0: Well, just finally, as you said earlier, this event, these extraordinary events, have descended from a more or less clear blue sky. It's very difficult to know what to make of them, and even harder to know what, if any, significance they may be deemed to have in Ireland's future. But if we look at some of the people known to be involved... For example, the socialite, socialist and suffragette, Constance Markovic, who seems to have been involved in the fighting at St. Stephen's Green. Perhaps even this rather austere-looking Eamon de Valera fellow, who seems to be in command at Boland's Mills. Do any of these strike you as the kind of figures that might go on to play a significant part in Ireland's destiny? Or is this something that's likely to sort of blow over?
3: Well, several of the leaders in the GPO and the post office are very well known. We talked about Mm. Pearson Connolly already. It's not clear what's going to happen to them. You mentioned Constance Markovich, so she's known in Dublin circles as the Countess. She comes from a very aristocratic family in the west of Ireland. She was presented to Queen Victoria as a debutante. That's how high she is in the aristocracy. She married a Polish count, hence the name. But you know, she's well known for her socialism and her radical nationalism, and as you say, her advocacy for the women's right to vote. It's not at all clear, you know, what's going to happen, how clearly she's been involved, how central a figure she is. Mr de Valera is not well known at all at this point to the public. We believe he's in command of the rebel outpost at Bowlands Mills, which is commanding the bridges over the canal in the southeast of the city. It does appear there are reports that he wouldn't let any women rebels into his garrison, which is unusual because women appear to be involved in many of the other rebel garrisons around the city. John Dorney, thank you very
0: much for joining us here on The Foreign Desk. That is it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week with the third and last episode in our current historical series which goes all the way back to the sack of Troy with the use of a large wooden horse full of Greek soldiers. And look out, of course, for the Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces the Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact the Foreign Desk team, you can email Emma at es at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.